This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency will wait until at least the middle of July for a new leader. Senator Rick Scott of Florida placed a hold on Jen Easterly's nomination to become CISA director before the Senate went into recess for the Independence Day state work period. Federal News Network reports Scott's placed a hold on all nominees for DHS jobs because Vice President Harris hadn't visited the southern border of the United States before the recess. CISA and the Department of Veterans Affairs would be the homes of cyber training programs under a new bill in the Senate. Democrat Maggie Hassan and Republican John Cornyn are co-sponsors of the bill. FedScoop reports the VA would work with the Defense Department, DHS, the Labor Department, and the Office of Personnel Management on its program. CISA would work with Labor, NIST, DOD, the National Science Foundation, and OPM on its program. Another bill in Congress would keep inspector general offices open for business if the government shuts down again because of a lapse in appropriations. Democratic Senator Tom Carper and Republican Mike Braun are the sponsors of that bill. NextGov reports the sponsors of the House's version are Democrat Jerry Connolly and Republican Jody Heiss. The House Armed Services Committee will release proposals for the defense supply chain in July. One of the key stakeholders of the defense supply chain has some risk management problems it needs to deal with. Vijay D'Souza is director for IT and cybersecurity at the Government Accountability Office. Vijay, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What did you look at specifically at the Defense Logistics Agency and why? Yeah, thanks, Francis. So what we looked at is uh, six key inventory management systems that DLA uses to get its job done. And we looked at how well DLA had applied the DOD risk management framework to ensure the cybersecurity of these systems. What did you find as you looked at these systems, PJ? Well, the risk management framework has six steps. And for two of the areas, basically categorizing the risk of the systems and developing an approach to implementing cybersecurity controls, we thought DLA was doing a pretty good job. But for the other four areas, we found some significant weaknesses. Um, at a high level, a lot of the weaknesses related to gaps in kind of documentation and management oversight, but taken together, these are pretty significant issues. What was it doing well in the two areas that it did well, and what were the shortcomings in the other four, VJ? Well, um, you know, I think DOD and DLA together are trying to use automation to help streamline some of the paperwork and documentation requirements around cybersecurity. So I think this helped them with the two areas where we found strengths. So they were able to use some of their automated systems to accurately categorize the risk and then also use some of the information they already had to identify ways to implement cybersecurity controls. But for the other four areas, I think this kind of ended up being a weakness in the sense that DLA seemed to be perhaps overly relying on the systems versus the people to look at the data in the systems. So, for example, um, we found that the packages that uh, DLA was supposed to prepare to 
provides management to sort of sign off or authorize on systems had a lot of missing information in them. And this was because uh, DLA told us they were still kind of new to using the system and they hadn't necessarily implemented the appropriate workflow to require folks to go back and make sure the packages were complete before they were submitted for approval. The, the six that you write about are categorizing the system, that's one where they did okay, selecting security controls, establishing implementation approaches uh, were uh, challenges, uh, excuse me, establishing in implementation approaches was okay, assessing security controls, authorizing systems, and monitoring security controls were the shortcomings. What are the risks here for the areas where the DLA came up short? Well, the risk is that DLA may be missing something in its oversight of these systems and also maybe missing something in just understanding what risk they're exposed to. You know, no system is going to be 100% secure, so it's important that management understand the trade-offs that they're making when they're authorizing use of these systems. One example that I'll cite is that uh, DLA had a bunch of remedial action plans we looked at, so there were 1,600 actions that DLA needed to take. Um, 11 of, uh, over a thousand of them had exceeded the year deadline for mitigation and of those one third needed management approval to kind of sign off saying, hey, we understand this is taking longer than we thought to get this done. There was no evidence of that, that waiver is what it's called. There was no evidence that that waiver had been approved. So it sounds like part of this is process and not so much the actual execution uh, fixing the actual problems. It's, it's basically an authority to operate, it sounds like. Well, you know, I think it's both. I think part of the point here is that the risk management framework is designed to allow management to take like a holistic view, kind of looking across the whole system, looking at all the risks. And so if you can't get an accurate representation of the big picture, you, you know, you can also be missing stuff in the details. Can these be fixed in uh, an, an enterprise way? Can they be, or, or do they have to be fixed in a linear way, VJ? Do they have to get one right before they proceed to the next one? So uh, you can definitely fix all of them concurrently, but I think the point we want to make, and this kind of came up when DLA responded to our report, they showed evidence that they had addressed some of the individual shortcomings we identified, but what we were looking for is evidence of a systematic fix, that they had changed processes to head off these problems so that they don't occur the next time they do this or if they're doing it for other systems that we're not looking at. In your recommendations, did you have specific things that they should do to solve these problems or was your were your recommendations less prescriptive, just suggesting they need to figure out some way to move forward? Uh, our recommendations were, were, basically, were at a higher level. We basically wanted them to put the management checks and processes in place to make sure that the information in these security packages was complete, that there weren't errors, that they got needed waivers and so on. The exact how they were going to do this is, is you know, up to DLA. What do you do to move forward? Do you have uh, an intention or a legislative mandate to follow up with this, to follow on and see how DLA has moved forward? Sure. Well, as with all GEO recommendations, we'll continue to track progress on, on these efforts and report out to Congress. And DLA is also required to record on its progress in addressing these issues. Um, I, I would anticipate, given the you know, increasing threats we see to cybersecurity supply chain issues, that we're likely to continue to take looks at this in the future as well. Vijay D'Souza, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your time today. Thanks. It was great to be here. You can find a link to that work at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, a $50 billion small business bonanza. Straight ahead on Government Matters, who's buying what and how companies can find that money. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. 426 companies will compete for up to $50 billion on the new STARS-3 contract from the General Services Administration. The Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service, Sonny Hashmi, says the agency will roll out the new contract in cohorts. Alan Thomas is Chief Operating Officer at IntelliBridge. He's former Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at GSA. Alan, welcome. It's nice to see you again. I am sure that you're happy that GSA has STARS-3 on the street. What does this mean by cohorts? How's that going to work? So I, I think you know they're they're, they're uh, they've got this concept of cohorts. I actually think it's a it's an interesting strategy potentially to prevent the possibility of protest or certainly at least uh, delay it. Right? I mean, you might remember Alliant too small got hung up with a number of protests and ultimately had to be canceled. So this this idea of cohorts, I think, you know, sort of allows you to to make some awards. They made more than 400 phase one awards. Uh, and, and get some vendors out to serve uh, your, you know, GSA's customers in the federal acquisition community. And then uh, you know, there, there's another, another set of vendors that I think are probably worthy that they're in negotiations with, but maybe you know, weren't, weren't sort of the top vendors and that, you know, that, that, that'll be the second cohort. So I think it allows them to get capability out quickly uh, and it also allows them to do it and sort of avoid that, that, that protest trap that I think they fell into with, with Alliant too. So smart, smart, um, savvy contracting on GSA's part. What is on Stars 3? What can agencies buy and how can they buy it? So, uh, you know, Stars 3, right, is sort of uh, custom technical solutions, right? That's kind of the bread and butter of the Stars program, a long, long running program, um, traditionally used uh, almost across the board, a very popular vehicle in, uh, in DOD. I think a, a couple things are interesting uh, in this iteration, right? That that separate it from its predecessor. So one is um, this concept of emerging technology, right? So things like AI, machine learning, robotic process automation, right? There was a big focus on that. Makes sense. You got what's what's going to be an eight-year contract, right? So you, you want to make sure you've got kind of the latest and greatest in technology. You've got onboarding and offboarding capabilities, so you can sort of keep the keep the vendor base fresh. And then you've also customers also now have the ability to do. Um, to do Oconus work off of Stars, uh, which they didn't in the past, and I think it's in both the emerging tech and um, the Oconus requirement is an example of GSA listening to its customers. Right, those customers who use Stars to say, "Hey, we love the vehicle, but man, we'd love to be able to do some work Oconus," or you know, we're kind of thinking about the next iteration of technology. GSA said, "Great, let let's include that in Stars Three when we when we make the award." which they did to their credit. All right, um, a philosophical question that I have to have you answer for me, Alan. I see, anytime I see reports about these GWACs, I, somebody always writes, GWAC, and this is FedScoop this time, GWACs are best in class contracts. Why do we have contracts that aren't best in class? Why are we not always using best in class contracts if they're the, they're the best ones in the class? Well, I think, look, the, the federal government is a, is, a, is a huge animal, right? With all kinds of mission requirements, uh, you know, all, all, all over the place, right? Across all the agencies. So there are a certain set of contracts that have been designated by OMB as, uh, as best in class. Those are obviously great contracts to use. They may not meet um, everybody's need and sort of may not meet every mission um, that, you know, that, that the federal government has. And I, I do think it's important for individual agencies to have the flexibility, right, to issue, to be able to stand up IDIQs that might serve a specific need uh, that, that, that they have that maybe you couldn't necessarily fulfill in a GWAC or uh, in, a, in a multiple award contract like an OASIS or, you know, whatever, whatever the follow-on is going, going to be there. So I think just given 
the, the sort of size and scope uh, of the mission that that the federal government has, it, it makes sense to have 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 a little bit of little bit of flexibility in there. All right, I wish I had a prize to give you because you're the first person in 15 years who I've asked that question to, who's explained it in a way that I understand. So I, I'm grateful to you for that. Um, what's your biggest takeaway about this contract, Alan? What has to happen? What would you like to see happen for this to execute well, both on the part of GSA? and the part of the vendors who are on it or will be on it? So I think from a GSA perspective, it's really important uh, to, to make sure this this contract, and again, I think it's why they took the cohort approach, um, get sort of gets through this, this protest hurdle that they faced in the past, again, with, with, with Alliant 2, right? So you think about, um, you think about STARS 3, you think about Polaris, you've already got the, you know, the, the VETS 2 offering, that's really GSA's sort of suite of GWACs that they go out and offer to their customers that uh, where where those customers can get access to uh, small businesses, right? To meet to meet their meet meet their technology needs. So, I think they've come up with a strategy to do it, and I I, I think they will sort of get over that get get over that protest hurdle. From a from from a vendor standpoint, right? Look, Stars has a long history, right, of of uh, successful performance, and a number of vendors who started out as eight A's, right, which is just how the program is designed won a number of task orders on stars eventually outgrew the program and became you know became successful performers just as as mid-tiers or you know emer kind of emerging uh larger businesses there's lots of m a activity around it right when the sort of when those things come come uh, come out of their 8a so that i think vendors just have to continue to perform like 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 they have been and it's always good to see sort of the next right the the next crop of vendors come up. I mean, it's why you put a vehicle like this in place. And I do think it's why, if you notice in the press release, right, the the uh, political appointees at GSA sort of tied it to uh, Executive Order thirteen nine eighty five, right, which is the administration's uh, EO on uh, racial equity and and uh, supporting underserved communities. Now, look, Stars have been around a lot longer than the EO. Um, but it, I don't think it was lost on people that, hey, it, it's relevant in terms of how it, how it supports a presidential priority. About 30 seconds left, Alan. What do the on-ramps and off-ramps look like for companies that grow or companies that come into the marketplace and want to try to, to, to get in on this? Well, in my mind, the uh, you know my sense is the off ramps will probably be uh, fairly rare. They might might be potentially for inactivity or, or things like that. The on ramps, I think, are what are what's important. Again, this is an eight year contract, right? A five year base, a three three year option. You think about anytime you put a contract for technology in place, and you're talking about something that's five or more years in the future. What's going to be the hot technology? What you know? What what what, what kind of things are customers going to be looking at in five years? I don't know. Um, and if I put a contract in place, I want to make sure I have the ability to be flexible and, ha and get, get the right vendors uh, on that vehicle. You've seen sort of some recent criticism, maybe from some of the industry associations about these kind of long, you know, long period of performance uh, GWACs. I think the ability to, to onboard new players is one, one of the answers, right, to make sure the contract stays fresh and relevant for customers. Alan Thomas, thanks as always. It's great to see you. Thanks, Francis. Take care. You can find a link to the Stars 3 Awards at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, a facelift coming for VA facilities. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the $18 billion blitz to modernize and build from scratch. I'll be right back. The Department of Veterans Affairs may change its model for building care centers. 
The White House budget request lists billions of dollars for modernizing and building new centers. Greg Giddens is partner at Potomac Ridge Consulting. He's former chief acquisition officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Greg, welcome. It's good to see you. For years, we have been talking about the possibility of some type of realignment and closure, some BRAC-type activity at VA. It appears now the administration's going in a different direction. How would you like to see them best execute that to meet the ultimate mission of serving the veteran? Well, Fred, it's great to be, be with you. Uh, and there has been discussion for many years about some type of brag for the VA. Uh, even when I was there, we tried to do this a facility or two at a time. And when it's just one facility in somebody's backyard, it's really tough uh, to get the decision process going. And I think the administration is trying to balance two different needs. One is to really take a look at the infrastructure and the assets that the VA has to serve veterans and then balance that against the demands and access that veterans need. The veterans have a huge inventory of facilities, over 6,000 owned and 2,000 leased facilities. Uh, the vast majority of those are in places where veterans will really need to maintain that type of access and demand. But there's some uh, that based on demographics and shifts and where veterans are that probably need to be looked at in terms of downsizing and or closing. The word here that I think applies is a word that's used very commonly in the military, and that's presence. Does it matter so much what the facility is as it does that the vet can get access to care relatively easily and quickly? So, France, great question. And you really have to balance both of those uh, because it's not just the ease of getting to the facility, but then what are the services and types of care models and types of procedures uh, and capabilities that that facility has. And also looking to balance that about what is readily available in the private market. Now, that's another factor that the VA uh, includes when they're looking at their capital planning uh, years in the future, trying to determine what's available in the market, what do they have, and what do veterans need in terms of procedures and capabilities at the medical centers. I recall a hearing at which one uh, member of the House Veterans Affairs Committee told uh, a VA official at the time, whatever you do, don't call it BRAC. And, and I wonder how important the terminology is here, both to explain from the VA to Congress and from the VA to veterans, what it is that VA is trying to do, whether it's consolidation, building something new, whatever that is, how much does the terminology matter, Greg? I, I think it matters a lot, particularly in this town. You can get a visceral reaction to terms like BRAC, and I think the decision to call this the Asset and Infrastructure Review Commission was a good one to really focus on the review and what's needed. And it's not just about building new facilities. It's about looking at those current facilities. Francis and the VA, their healthcare facilities are over 50 years old. In private industry, they're about 11 years old. So those aging facilities carry with them a lot of deferred maintenance. The VA currently has over 20 billion in deferred maintenance just for those aging facilities. So it's not just about building new, it's about taking a look at how do we rehab, how do we make the current facilities more open, more welcoming, and more conducive to meeting the obligation for the men and women who are the cloth of our country. What should the VA have learned from the Denver hospital that it can apply moving forward to avoid the mistakes that it made in Denver? So I think a couple of things the VA should have learned, and I think they have learned as they're moving forward, is you really have to focus on getting the design right. 
the VA became under a lot of pressure to begin construction and they started construction while they still had a very immature design. And laying that design out and having it open during construction really invited a lot of changes throughout the process. And you really need to look at the structure of that design, firm it up before you move forward. And I think the VA has also learned they need to standardize and modulize. Need to standardize uh, the kind of building blocks and think about it almost as some Legos. Have some modular units that if you have this type of care, this type of capability, use this module and build those and not redesign everything for every new medical center. Are those techniques that private sector healthcare systems use when they're building new facilities, Greg? They are. They're used in the private sector, and the VA has started using those over the recent years, and they'll need to use those and now in this accelerated time of whether it's going to be modernization or building new facilities. They'll need to adopt those, and I know the team at the VA is working hard with industry, pulling in those ideas, as well as working with veterans. Right? They have to use human-centered design and get inputs from veterans on what their needs are and expectations for facilities, as well as the staff, because in the end, that, that building – we won't provide health care for any veteran. It'll be the staff, clinicians, the health care workers that are inside that will be providing that care. And that's where I wanted to go next. What is it, What kind of feedback, what kind of input from the providers that are going to meet the needs of the vets every day is important at the HQ level? Uh, it's extremely important. They've really realized you have to take that into consideration. One of the things uh, Senator McDonald taught us is you can't expect veterans to receive great experience and great care if our employees aren't having a good experience. So it's critical to get those employees input, understand what their needs are. They're the ones that every day, every night, are serving those veterans' needs. And we want to bring those design concepts in and work those in early so that in the end, the facility not just meets the veterans' needs, but also is doing it in a way that's conducive to the staff, the clinicians, the healthcare workers that'll be in those facilities providing care. Greg Giddens, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back on the program. My pleasure. Don't forget if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. And you get a preview and a recap of every show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? 
it's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20 year old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract. GSA has got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. GSA has been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, stop stop the presses start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.